Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Kings. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 12 today. If you do not have a Bible, uh, we have a few back here in the back on our resource table. Feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't have one at home, please keep it. Let that be our gift to you today. Um, Today we're beginning a brand new sermon series called The Hidden Prophets. I'm really excited about this. I've been looking forward to it uh, over the last few weeks as I've been digging into these books. Um, We're going to be exploring the parts of the Old Testament, the books of the Old Testament that are sometimes called the minor prophets. And they're called the minor prophets because of the length of these books. They are very, very short books. They're shorter than the so-called major prophets, which are guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, And unfortunately, I think our Western ears, we hear that word minor and we think lesser or we think less important. Like surely Isaiah is more important than Obadiah, for example. And chances are, if you grew up in the church, you grew up hearing a lot more about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel than you did about Haggai or Amos or Obadiah or people like that. And so uh, not only in the way that we talk about them, but also probably our experience in the church, we've heard more about some of these other prophets than we have heard about these 12 In Judaism, though, these prophetic writings are called the Book of the Twelve. And that's because in the Hebrew Bible, which is what we call the Old Testament, the twelve minor prophets were historically all collected onto one scroll or one book. So they were the Book of the Twelve. Um, uh, The Book of Samuel, for example, in the Old Testament um, was not able to fit. On one scroll. So there were two scrolls that made up the book of Samuel. Thus, in our Bibles today, we have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is not like the sequel to 1 Samuel. It all just couldn't fit on one scroll. But with these 12, they were all short enough to fit, so they became known as the book of the 12. So chances are you are completely unfamiliar with these. You've heard of them. You might could recite them um, in a list of books of the Bible. Um, But the only one you're probably super aware of or have some sense of what happens in is the book of Jonah. And as you will see, once we get to Jonah, Jonah is very different from most of these books. Um, Jonah is a prophet, but the book of Jonah is not necessarily a book of prophecy in the way that these other books are. And so it's a little bit different. I think the biggest issue with these is that it is prophecy, and prophecy is notoriously difficult to read and understand. It's also notoriously difficult to teach and preach. And this is especially true for the minor prophets because virtually none of them are prophesying about the distant future or, say, like the end times. And so it can be difficult for us to figure out why we should even bother reading them if they're mostly talking to the contemporary Hebrew world in which they lived. I think sometimes we think that prophecy is all about telling the future. Um, But in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets... We're all about declaring the word of the Lord, no matter what that word was. That was the job of a prophet. So in order to understand these 12 minor prophets, I think it's essential that we have a sense of the history surrounding them, surrounding the time and the place 
in which they lived because for almost all of them, they were speaking to the world in which they found themselves. So before we jump into these books, we're actually going to take a couple of weeks um, to do a few things that I think will help us lay a foundation for this. First, we're going to do a quick survey of the Old Testament because many people, including people who've grown up in the church, don't even know many of the major milestones of the Hebrew people that we find in the Old Testament. Many of us would be hard-pressed to kind of outline the history of Israel, even though it makes up a bulk of the content of the Bible. Yet for some reason, to many of us, it is obscure. The minor prophets lived in a roughly 300-year span that was after the time of King David, but before the time of Jesus. So what was happening in those 300 years? What was going on? That's a key to understanding these books. So the second thing we're going to do is we're going to talk specifically about prophecy and prophetic literature, because like I said, we often don't know what to do with this stuff. It can be highly symbolic. It can be highly metaphorical. At times, it could even be literal. And so we're going to address how to approach prophecy. How do we read it? How do we interpret it? What do we do with the prophets themselves? What was their role in ancient Israel? Why did God send them? And do we still have prophets today? There's certainly people who claim to be prophets today. There's certainly people who would identify with that gifting. And even the Apostle Paul in Ephesians seems to suggest that prophecy is a gift for the New Testament church. So is that true? Is that the same thing as what we're talking about here? So we're going to dig into all of that as well. And then from there, we're going to dive into each of these books individually. We're actually not going to take them in the order that we find them in the Old Testament, but rather we're going to take them in what we believe to be chronological order, because I think that's going to help us stay on track with what's going on by kind of looking at each individual time period and considering the different prophets that were speaking to Israel and Judah during that time period. So... A big question that you probably have is, why are these even worth reading? Why are they worth studying? What's the point? Well, first of all, most importantly, we believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God and that it's His self-revelation to us. And, and so just in that very basic sense, why would we not read these, right? Why would these not be a part of our study of the Scriptures? But... On top of that, I also think the minor prophets were actually living in a time period that might look recognizable to us in a way, a time period that's not all that dissimilar from our own. Unlike us, in their time, Israel was dealing with a number of outside invaders and military aggressors, so that's not necessarily a position we're in, but much like us, the minor prophets lived in a deeply divided world, politically, socially, the nation of Israel literally splits in two during their time. They were living in a time in which many of the political leaders and most of the people had forgotten God. They'd abandoned God in pursuit of either secular ideologies or immoral lifestyles or just outright worship of pagan gods. And so to me, that actually sounds a lot like America in 2021. Deep division. Many people who would claim God but are really running after all kinds of other things. 
And so in that sense, the prophets turn a mirror on us. They show us ourselves in some ways. Many of the things that they called out Israel for, we're also guilty of. So in the face of these books, we see ourselves. And just as Israel was in desperate need of a Savior, so are we. In the same way that Israel was in desperate need of hope, so are we. And left to our own devices, we are incapable of saving ourselves. And so we're quick to make other things our God. We're quick to try to find our hope in other things. So in light of all these accounts, I think we actually see Jesus and the beauty of the gospel. So to get us going, let's go to 1 Kings 12. 1 Kings 12, beginning in verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam. The third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel." There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. This is the word of the Lord. So our text today is primarily about two people, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and whether we realize it or not, we're actually witnessing here in this passage a major turning point in the nation of Israel known as the division of the kingdom. This is a turning point not for the better by any stretch. And the minor prophets all come in the wake of this event. But how did we get here? How did we get to this point? I want to walk through real quick this morning 10 key milestones of the history of Israel that we see in the Old Testament. By the way, Lee taught me recently how to properly use the whiteboard Right? Instead of standing in one place, I'm supposed to walk to the side. Is it right? Am I doing it right? Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. So just real quick, 10 key milestones in the history of Israel. Of course, we have to begin with Abraham. Uh, Abraham. Now I got to spell correctly. Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. Abraham has a son, Isaac. And Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob is the one who comes to be known as 
Israel. These men are often called the patriarchs. They are the fathers of the nation of Israel. And from Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. Think, if you've ever heard of the 12 tribes of Israel, those come from Jacob's 12 sons, who all eventually moved to Egypt, if you remember the story of Joseph, but ultimately become slaves in Egypt. The people of Israel spend at least 400 years in the land of Egypt, but eventually God sends a man named Moses, and they are released from the captivity of Pharaoh, and thus begins the period of time known as the Exodus. If you remember the story of Moses and the Israelites, they wander around in the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience, but eventually they come back to the land of Canaan. This was a land that God had originally promised to Abraham, their forefather. He called Abraham to leave the place where he had grown up and to come in search of this new land. He finds it. But after the people experience slavery in Egypt, they're gone from the land. And so after hundreds of years, God says, I'm going to bring you back. You're going to return. You're going to take possession of the land. And so Joshua follows Moses and leads the people of Israel into what is sometimes called the promised land of Canaan. They re-enter the promised land, and after that time, they eventually set up a, a series of leaders who are not necessarily kings or queens. They're kind of military leaders. They're a little bit strange, but they're known as the judges If you remember the story of Samson in the Bible, Samson's probably the most famous of the judges. There were also female judges. There was a judge named Deborah that we see in the Old Testament. So they go through the period of the judges, and the people say, God, we want a real king. We want a king like all the other nations have kings. And God basically says, wait a second, I I thought I was your king. But he gives in to their request, and it enters us into a new period called the period of of the monarchy. For the first time ever, Israel has an actual human king. The first king is a man named Saul, who is crazy and wicked, ultimately. And then we get the greatest king that Israel had ever seen up to that point, a man named David. The Lord calls David and anoints David and makes him king over all of Israel. Following David, we have King Solomon, who was known for his great wealth and his great wisdom. However, the monarchy doesn't last forever. And ultimately, Rehoboam, who we see in today's text, the son of Solomon, becomes king of all Israel. And Rehoboam, as we will see, chooses not to submit to the will of the people. And so the kingdom divides into two. And we enter a period known as the divided kingdom. To the north, we have the nation of Israel, which is also sometimes called Samaria, the northern kingdom. And to the south, we have the land of Judah, because as we saw in today's text, only one tribe really stays with Rehoboam, and that is the tribe of Judah. So Judah to the south, Israel to the north. But both of these kingdoms have issues with wickedness, and the Lord ultimately sends in a number of outside aggressors, military invaders. It starts with the Assyrians, it goes to the Babylonians, and then eventually the Persians who come in and either destroy or carry the people away into exile. So 
That's what comes next, is a period of exile. The people of Judah are carried away to Babylon, and Babylon is overtaken by the Persians. Eventually, though, after many decades, the Persians actually allow the people of Judah to begin to return to the land. They return to Jerusalem. The beautiful temple that had been built by King Solomon had been completely destroyed, the people return, they begin rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. If you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, it's about the people returning, rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. They also begin to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem as well. But it's nothing like the original temple. It's, it's like a shell of its former self. The people who had seen the original temple weep when they see the new temple. But it enters us into another era known as the Second Temple Period. And so as the, New, as the Old Testament rather closes out, we are in what's known as the Second Temple Period that takes us into the New Testament. But there's a period of about 400 years in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament in which God is silent, where he's not speaking, where there aren't prophets declaring the word of the Lord in the land until somebody named John the Baptist stands up. And begins calling people to repentance. So this in just a very 30,000 foot broad stroke is a quick overview of the Old Testament timeline. And that basically brings us up to where we are here in 1 Kings. Roughly 930 years before the time of Jesus. So just a little less than a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Rehoboam the son of Solomon is king of all Israel. And while his grandfather David and his father Solomon had presided over effectively the golden age of Israel, their reigns had also been complicated. David had ushered in a time of peace and prosperity that had never been seen in Israel. And Solomon expanded their influence and their wealth even farther. He was known for great wisdom and people from all over would come to see his kingdom. And, and come to see how he ruled his kingdom. Solomon also fulfilled this call from God to build a grand temple, a grand center of worship for the Hebrew faith. And he builds this amazing, awe-inspiring place of worship. And you can read about it in great detail in the pages of Scripture. Solomon, however, took on many wives, some from other places, other faiths, and he ultimately winds up being kind of a polytheist, not only worshiping the one true God, but also trying to integrate the worship of all of these other gods, the gods of his wives, into the mix as well. And so even though he had built this incredible center for Hebrew worship, he had done so on the backs of his people through forced labor. And so where we pick up today in 1 Kings... His son Rehoboam has come to the throne, and the people come to Rehoboam, and, and they say, would you lighten our load? Would, would you make life easier for us? And as we saw, he said, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. So most of the people of Israel revolt. They make a man named Jeroboam their king. Jeroboam at one point in time had been an official within the court of Solomon before he was forced into exile. But he comes back. He takes the throne of this new northern kingdom of Israel. And Rehoboam is flushed out 
back into Jerusalem, into hiding behind the walls in the southern kingdom of Judah. We actually have a map up here I wanted to show you guys. Y'all know how I like to nerd out on maps. This is what it looked like at the time. So you have the southern kingdom of Judah down here. You can maybe see Jerusalem kind of at the top and then the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, The capital city of the northern kingdom was Samaria. It was sometimes Shechem. It kind of moved around a little bit, but that's basically how it broke down. So most of the tribes are concentrated in that northern region. And then you have Judah at the very bottom. So that's kind of what it looks like. And this is a real descent right, for Israel. They're now two nations. Neither of them really is all that interested in following God. The holy city, Jerusalem, is the seat of Hebrew worship. It's the place where you go to make sacrifice. But Jeroboam's not allowing people in the north to go down to Jerusalem and worship God because he's afraid they're going to defect back to the house of David. And so he starts setting up pagan altars all around the land. So that the people can worship, but the gods that they're worshiping are not real. And so a theme that we see in all of this is the abandonment of wisdom. The abandonment of wisdom. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you remember our scripture we read earlier in the Psalms, what did God say? He desires those who fear him. That's where true wisdom begins, when our hope is in the one true God, when our worship is, our devotion, our affection is given over to the one true God. If he is real, if he's the creator of all all things, if he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die so that we might be reconciled to him, then putting our hope or trust in anything else would be pure foolishness. It would be idiocy. And so true wisdom is looking to him As God, not only intellectually, but in our lives, truly giving over everything to him, truly worshiping him for who he is. Rehoboam, when the people come to him, he seeks counsel. He goes to the old men and he goes to the young men. When he goes to the old men, the effective elders of Israel, here's what they say to him. If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, And speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. This is what the old men tell Rehoboam. That's that's pretty good advice, right? This is servant leadership. If you serve them, then they're going to love you and follow you. The young men, on the other hand, are brash and arrogant and power-hungry and inexperienced. And Rehoboam listens to them instead. And in doing so, he abandons wisdom. Notice, by the way, that at no point does he appeal to God, right? At no no point does he come to God and say, what should I do here? How should I respond to these people? He doesn't even ask. Instead, he tries to find his answers elsewhere. And he chooses to display his power, his positional authority, Rather, stepping into the wisdom of the elders and becoming a servant leader in front of his people. So God responds in two ways. First, he sends punishment in the form of the Assyrians, outside aggressors who begin attacking. And then second, he sends prophets 
to call people to repentance, to call people to turn back to him. So the prophets that we're going to be studying here in these books fall into three basic categories based on who the invading or occupying army is at the time. And and I'll just start with the first few today. First, the Assyrians come, as I said. It's roughly 785 BC, so several hundred years even before the time of Jesus. The Assyrians come, and during the time in which the Assyrians are attacking and invading, God sends prophets to both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. To the northern kingdom of Israel... The prophet Jonah. He also sends Amos and Hosea. To the southern kingdom, he sends two significant prophets during this era. One of these is one that we would call a major prophet, and that's the prophet Isaiah. The other prophet he sends during this time period is the prophet Micah. So this is where we're going to begin in a couple of weeks. We're actually going to begin with the book of Jonah because the book of Jonah is believed to be the oldest of all of these. And um, then we're going to begin walking through Jonah, Amos, Hosea. We won't be studying Isaiah. He's a major But we will study Micah before we jump into the next time period, which is the period of the Babylonian invasion. So that's where we're going to begin in a couple of weeks. And so let me close with this today. Um, As the kingdom divides, it begins this long line of kings in both Israel and Judah, nearly like 40 different kings that come along. And, And there are a few good ones in Judah who want to follow God, who want to be faithful, but most of them just don't care about God. They're they're not interested in following him, or they outright worship other gods and lead the people to worship other gods. But, But here's the common denominator. No king is perfect, and no king is actually capable of truly securing or saving the people. None of them are able to do it, no matter how how much they love the Lord or how wicked they are. It really doesn't matter. The people want to look back to the time of David, and, and, and they wished that he would return and come back to the throne. But David also had major issues, right? David was an adulterer and a murderer, and his children were a complete mess, and some, some of his wives hated him. And so his son Solomon was no better, um, nor was any other king that follows. And that's part of the point. It's part of the point. None of these human kings were sufficient to give the people what they most needed. But eventually, eventually, there is a king coming who will be called the new and better David. And he will take the advice of his father. If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Guys, that is exactly who Jesus is. 
That is exactly what Jesus does. He listens to his father. He says, I only do what I see my father doing. He is the one who truly becomes a servant king to the people, even to the point of death. He is the one who speaks good words to the people in the form of the gospel. He is the one who goes to the cross so that we might actually have the ability to be servants of God forever. None of the so-called kings who came before him could do anything of the sort. None of them could even begin to step into that space. None of them had the ability. None of them had the power. They were inadequate. They were incompetent. And yet they are reminding us, as we see their stories unfold in the weeks to come, they are reminding us, praise God, that we have a king who is actually good and true and faithful. And so this is something we have to remember in today's world because we are inclined to give our allegiance to other lesser kings. We're inclined to put our hope in other lesser things. We're happy to give the proverbial title of king to other people or other things in our lives. We're inclined to put our hope in political leaders, thinking it's going to bring us joy or a future or wealth or status or power. Israel did the same thing. We're inclined to abandon wisdom in search of power and wealth and comfort. We're inclined to do whatever we think is best without seeking the Lord, without going to his word. And surprise, surprise, we, weep what, or we reap what we sow. We shouldn't be surprised with the outcome that we get, that we are anxious and fearful and scattered and worrisome. The message of the minor prophets is that we too must turn back to God, not as a one-time thing, but as a daily endeavor. Not by giving him lip service or just by going to church or, or even affiliating with like religious things, but by giving him the whole of our existence. Because there is nothing that we are, there's nothing that we have that did not come from him. We sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow. He is the source. And so by becoming the servants of this servant king, Jesus, the real king of Israel, the new and better David, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, we find real life. And it's life that cannot be taken away from us. It's life that is sealed and secured forever by his body and his blood in a way that no human being could have ever accomplished for us. And so let us go to him in prayer today and give him thanks for what he has done. Jesus, you are good and holy. And we affirm today that you are the new and better David. The one who gives us life and hope. 
the one who brings us joy. The one who was willing to sacrifice his own life so that we might be reconciled to the Father. The one who is full of grace and truth. We praise you today. We thank you for the truth of your holy scriptures, the beauty of that word. And I pray through the power of your spirit that you would interpret it into our hearts in a way, Father, where we don't leave here and forget it. Or we don't leave here and just go back to some other way of life where you are not the center of everything. Father, help us through your great power to make Jesus the true axis on which our entire life revolves.